Right, well, good to see you this morning. Pastor Kevin's away on vacation, but we are continuing in Bloodlines this morning. And what's up next in this series today is, uh, is huge for the whole story of the Bloodline, and that is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Last week, Pastor Kevin talked about the Passover. Now the Passover is over. The people have, the Israelites have left Egypt, and God gives them the law, and a major part of that law it has to do with the sacrificial system, an entire system that points us to that ultimate sacrifice of, of Christ. But if I ask you, say, what do you, what do you know about that system? Probably a lot of us would say, man, I don't know much at all. Others would say, well, there's a lot of regulations. There's too many details. It's so confusing. But what if I told you those details really tell us a lot about God and what he wants for us and from us? Well, you know, that, if that's true, that would make knowing about that system pretty important to us. And uh, so we're going to try to look at it today. Look at it by looking into the book of Leviticus. Now, when I say Leviticus, I don't know what comes to your mind. Please don't zone out on me. I, I know it's unfortunately it's sort of become a proverbial joke. You you hear people talk about the fact that they just, they started reading their Bible. They committed to reading their Bible. And they got all excited about it, so they started reading in Genesis. And you know they read through Genesis, and and then they read through Exodus, and everything was going great, and they're all excited about all these stories. And then they get to Leviticus, and it's like, oh no, what what is all this about? Some have called it, sadly, the most boring book in the Bible. Because of all those details that seem to have seem to have nothing to do with our lives, hopefully we'll see something different this morning. We're going to talk about it today and try to bring it all down to some basic stuff that actually applies to us. The book of Leviticus is sort of the sequel to Exodus. It's the rest of the story. And, and before we get into the sacrifices, let me say this about it. When it comes to this book, the historical context has to be kept in mind. The laws that are given there aren't all timeless precepts like in the book of Proverbs. The laws of Israel given in this book were given to a nation in a particular phase of their history. These laws were designed to, to mold Israel into a holy people in a particular historical setting. So why is that important? Well, because some of the laws have to do with transcultural principles of morality. So they apply to anyone at any time. And we can see that when we come into the New Testament and some of them are repeated there. Even though it's a very different time and a very different culture. I mean, 1,400 years have passed. But they're still at play as to what is right and wrong. But others of the law don't cross that culture, cultural barrier. And it's clear that today when you see arguments going on between people that that understanding doesn't happen for a lot of people. It's like when, when we point out laws that are transcultural and hold these up as moral distinctives that are still valid today, and we're right in doing that, but when we do that, other people want to throw out other laws from Leviticus and throw that out and say, well, what about this law then? What about, what about the fact that, it, you know, that book, same book tells you you are not to wear clothing of two different kinds of material. Are you following that? What about the fact that it says, hey, you're not supposed to plant 
two seeds of two different seeds in one field. Are you following that? Are you following all these other laws? And they point that out as if we're hypocrites for not doing these other things, like, like we're picking and choosing what we want to follow. Well, that's not the case at all. Because not all the commands were meant to be transcultural, so that accusation doesn't hold water. Yet we have to determine which laws cross cultural barriers and which don't. And, and it's not that hard to determine that. We don't get to pick and choose which do or don't because of what we like. We determine it by how scripture handles those laws. And, and so there's whole sections that don't apply directly to us today. The ceremonial laws, the dietary laws. But there are others that transcend culture and still very much apply today because God's holiness is unchanging. Its expressions may vary from age to age, but he never does. I throw all that in at no extra cost. <laughs> Let's get back to sacrifices. The book of Leviticus starts with instructions about how the five most common types of sacrifices were to be performed. We're going to talk about four out of the five because the, the one offering, the, the offering that's talked about in chapter two is the grain offering doesn't really follow into the blood theme. So we're going to skip that one. It was a grain offering just of giving thanks for God's blessing to them. But we're going to start where the book starts in chapter one with the most common sacrifice, which was the burnt offering. There's actually three different kinds of burnt offerings. We're going to just look at the one because the other two are just modifications of that one. But we're going to start here in verse 1, chapter 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you comes, brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd... The burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet over the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Get all that? Here's the deal. He begins talking about this offering, this burnt offering, which is different from the public offerings, that public national sacrifices that were offered every day. They're offered every day and, and sometimes on festivals. This offering is different because it's about the individual. Because our God is not only big, he's also incredibly personal. And so if someone in sin, what they were to do was they were to pick out an animal, the right animal, an animal without defect, and they were to bring it into the court of the tabernacle to the entrance of the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was at the center of the tabernacle, and it's housed the Ark of the Covenant. Well, outside that tent then was the altar, and when that worshiper would bring that animal in and he got to the, to the altar, he was to lay his hands on the animal's head. Actually, the word lay here may be a little too soft from the Hebrew. It's a, it means, the word means to press to lean on. At this 
point, he probably told why he was offering the sacrifice, you know, what he had done wrong. Then the worshiper had to take that animal, and he himself had to kill it. How would you like to have to do that this morning? In the regular daily sacrifices, the priest did it, but in the burnt offering, you get to do it. You ever, you ever watch an animal die? Usually there's a struggle there, isn't it? They're, they fight for life. Even, even when they're threatened, they fight for life, don't they? I was, just, I was mowing my lawn this past week, and I'm mowing along, and all of a sudden I hear this screeching sound, and I thought it was uh, the belt on the mower, so I stop, and I think, okay, great, I'm going to have to fix this. And, and then, but then it quits. So then I move forward again. Screeching starts again. And, oh, yeah, something's wrong. And then I look forward, and about eight feet in front of me is a killdeer. You know what a killdeer is, a little bird? And, it's, and it's, it is mad. It is all bowed up. It's looking at me. It's screeching at me. And it's like, it's going to take me and my mower on, you know? <laughs> and I, I'm like, so I watch it because it's sort of humorous. I just, I watch it for a little bit and then I decide, well, okay, Gilder, they lay their eggs on the ground. So it's probably got some eggs there and I'm going to just mow around it and leave it alone. So I, I mow around that spot. And, uh, but then I go back later after I'm done mowing, I walk up to that area. I just want to see what is, how it reacts to me. And so when I walk up there, sure enough, she starts screeching again at me, and I, I can see the, the eggs this time. There's three or four eggs there on the ground. And then she runs off, and then she starts flopping, you know, and she's just flopping over. Because what they do is they, they try to act like they are wounded. So in case you are a predator, they want to look like easy prey. So you get distracted from the spot you're at near her eggs. They, she's doing everything she can to protect those eggs because even a bird understands that life is important. Can you imagine a bull as you're trying to offer this sacrifice for your sin? Can you imagine the struggle these people are going through and, and once they're killed, then you've got to skin the animal and chop it up. Give it to the priest and they burn it bit by bit in, on the altar. So why are they doing all this? Well, verse 4 told us they're doing all this to provide an atonement. They're doing all this so that they can be right with God. God himself explains that in chapter 17 of Leviticus. He says there, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. There, see, there's value in the blood because in it there's life. Sin is so devastating, so destructive to us that the fix has to be something powerful, something valuable. And the only thing that could do that was blood. Blood that is powerful and valuable because in it is life. So think about that burnt offering. Think about doing all they did to pull off a sacrifice. How much did they want to be right with God? Seems like a lot, right? You get the feeling these services were sort of intense. You know, it's not something you probably go 
tempted to fall asleep in, like maybe some of you are feeling it right now. The worshiper has chosen the right animal. They bring it in. They kill it. They dismember it. They, they watch it go up in smoke. And they do all that because they are convinced that something significant was happening. That their relationship with God was profoundly affected by their worship. Their relationship with God was profoundly affected by the worship. Maybe, maybe, just maybe the reason sometimes we're not really into church so much is because we don't feel like our relationship with God is profoundly affected by it. There's nothing really significant happening. We're just going to church. And that's a huge mistake on our part. To them, it meant they were accepted before the Lord. It was significant for them. And worshiping is significant for us. Hebrews 13, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews uses the picture of a burnt offering. And he says there, through him then, talking about Jesus, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So those, those verses using this picture of a burnt offering call us, they, they call us to, to worship that is significant, to, to praise that is continual, to service that's sacrificial. And it's all pictured for us in that burnt offering, worship that is significant not meaningless, not empty, not unengaged, where maybe we're just here because someone, you know, made us come, or we're just here because we're here out of habit. It's what we do on Sunday morning. No, there's anticipation that by coming, and not just here at church, but living a life of worship, it's a, it, we are anticipating something significant happening with God, between us and God. Praise that is continual, is ongoing, no matter what our circumstances, that we praise him. And our praise of him doesn't stop because we're going through a tough situation. No, we know his greatness and we acknowledge it no matter what we're facing. And service that's sacrificial, that because of who he is, that because of his greatness, we want to serve him in a way that calls us to serve and pay a cost. That's what's pictured in the burnt offerings. Man, that's pretty good stuff for the most boring book in the Bible, isn't it? Isn't there something there that God would design that for us? That God used it as a significant point in their lives, but also can be pictured for us as something significant for us. So the first sacrifice is all about getting right with God. The next is all about getting right with each other. And that's the, the peace offering or the fellowship offering. It's talked about in chapter three of Leviticus. Peace offerings were, were a unique sacrifice for at least a couple of reasons. First, it was the only one of the major sacrifices where the one offering the sacrifice got to share in the eating of it. 
And then secondly, it was the only sacrifice that focused on celebration. You know, the other sacrifices were sort of solemn. But the fellowship sacrifice was God's invitation to a party. Not only did you sit down and eat a great meal with your family, you usually had so much there that you invited all your friends to share in it. And there were three types of this sacrifice too. There's a thank offering, there's a votive offering, there's a free will offering. The thank offering is again just a, an act of thanksgiving for, for blessings that God had given. The votive offering is if you'd made a vow, like a Nazarite vow, and you're going to fulfill that, then you'd, you'd give us a, an offering at that point. And then the free will offering could also be a burnt offering. But as a peace offering, it would be consumed on the second day, which is important. I'm going to explain that in just a second. The Israelites, though, weren't the only people to do these fellowship sacrifices. Even the pagans did them. But the Israelites had a specific command that made their sacrifices different. They were commanded in chapter 17 to bring their offering to the temple. In, in other words, unlike the pagans who could just give these sacrifices anywhere, the Israelites had the specific location of the temple. What God was saying, I think, is, hey, you are my people. And if we're going to celebrate, we're going to celebrate together. You're going to sell the fellowship offering is was was time for God's people to enjoy themselves and to enjoy God. Have a good time in those days. Anytime they celebrated, it was centered around God. So they were not only focused on being right with God, being right with God, but enjoying him as well. That's something the, the pagans couldn't do. You know, They are all about trying to be right with their God because they didn't want him mad at them. But the concept of enjoying him, well, as Christians, we not only want to be right with him, but we get to enjoy him. We get to enjoy his presence. So the primary purpose of the fellowship offering was fellowship with God and fellowship with the others. Fellowship, always been important to God. In fact, the church was built on fellowship. In Acts 2, you remember the, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Fellowship, always been important to God, maybe because he knew it would be important to us. And so God made a way for his people to celebrate with him and with each other. And, and boy, we need to do that today, don't we? Don't we, as Christians, we need to get together to celebrate him and to celebrate with each other. Maybe more so now than any other time before. In America, we have, we have unprecedented ways of communicating with each other, but we've become more and more isolated from each other. What we know about each other, we know from a computer screen. Vance Packer, the journalist, once said, America has become a nation of strangers. We're experiencing an epidemic of loneliness in our society. One Gallup poll showed that four in 10 Americans admit to frequent feelings of intense loneliness. Almost half of Americans not just experience loneliness, frequent feelings of intense loneliness. In fact, there's a, a, a number of polls that show Americans as the, the loneliest people in the world. 
That should never happen in the church. That's not the way God designed us to work. The Wall Street Journal once carried a cartoon where one man was talking to another man about a third man. And he, and he said, we've got his email, his fax, his pager, his cell phone, his voicemail, and his private line. But we've got absolutely no reason to contact him. <laughs> well, God wanted his people to have reason to contact each other. So in Leviticus 19, regarding this fellowship offering, he said this. Now, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day. But what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense. It will not be accepted. Everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity. For he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Wow, God's taking this pretty seriously. And, and, and to think about what he's saying here. You know, if you were alive then, you go sacrifice a cow or a sheep, pretty big animal, right? I mean, even after you've given the priest his portion, there'd be a lot of meat left over. So think about our Thanksgiving. You know, usually there's a fair amount of food left over, right? And what do we do with that food? We eat it, right? For, for days, we eat, we eat that food. But even if the Israelites had the, had the benefit of refrigerators, they couldn't have kept their leftovers more than two days. Why? Because it was forbidden by the law. God said any food that's left after two days had to be destroyed. Use it or lose it. So basically, the law forced the Israelites to share the food they had offered in this fellowship sacrifice so that Israelites generously would give to their friends and give to the poor so that they could all celebrate before God. The law of fellowship offerings forced God's people to share in fellowship with others. It kept them from being selfish and self-contained and self-centered. That's a great law, isn't it? A law requiring people to have a good time together. Isn't God good? I mean, that, that, that's in the details of Leviticus. What does God want for us? He wants us to be right with him and to be right with each other. That's what these first two sacrifices bring to us. And then in chapter 4, he talks about another sacrifice, the sacrifice of sin offerings of, or purification offerings. These sacrifices were done to give purification for inadvertent offenses. Sin that wasn't done blatantly, doesn't done deliberately, as opposed to sin that was done, you know, willfully with, with a sense of rebellion against God. So it's all in chapter four and we're not going to read through it. And you might be asking, well, we've already seen that other offerings like the burnt offering, you know, atone for sin. So how does this offering fit? You know, the burnt offering satisfied God's divine wrath. And then the fellowship offering symbolized intimate relationship. Now this sin offering purified the place of worship so that God could be present among his people. See, it didn't matter who sinned. It could be a priest. could have been the whole community. It could have been a leader. It could have been an ordinary Joe. 
if a private citizen sinned, his action polluted the sanctuary to a limited extent. So chapter four tells us, if we were reading through it, that the blood was only smeared on the horns of the altar of burnt offering in the court of the tabernacle. If the whole nation sinned or the high priest sinned, that was more serious. The blood had to be taken inside the tabernacle, sprinkled on the veil and the altar of incense. And then over a period of a year, the sins of the nation would accumulate to such an extent that even the holy of holies needed to be cleansed. And that's when in Leviticus 16, on the day of atonement, the high priest would take the blood into the holy of holies itself and smear it on in front of the mercy seat that surrounded the ark. It's these blood sprinkling rituals that are the principal focus of attention in the sin sacrifice. And they were all done because sin disrupts worship. The sin offering pictures for us how our sin impacts more than just us. It specifically impacts our worship. So to say today, well, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to worship God. But we're continuing in sin that hasn't been turned from. Or to say we're worshiping God, but being unwilling to deal with our disobedience. Doesn't work. Our sin contaminates our worship. To live a life in a way that's in disregard for the word of God, to say, hey, I know what the Bible says about this, but... means that our worship is meaningless. Even if our sin is, 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 is out of carelessness, even if it's inadvertent, God is saying to us, he wants worship and he wants worshipers that are right with him. That's what the sin offering showed. So the question for us is, are we those worshipers? Have we come today? How did you, how did you come to church today? With, with your sin confessed? with a willingness to turn from it? Or are you hanging on to it? And you just do in church because it's what you do. Is our worship acceptable to him today? Because that's the point, isn't it? It's not about whether we liked it or not. It's about did he like it? The final major offering was the guilt offering, which wasn't really so much a different offering as it was a modification of the sin offering. The guilt offering added some addendums to the sin offering. And he talks about in chapter five, and and he gives some specifics in those first six verses of of, of sins that an ordinary person might bring as a guilt offering. he talks about those and then how to deal with them. And then if you're to, how you're to bring a, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat. And if you can't afford one of those options, then you're to bring two birds, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. If you can't afford that, you're to bring flour and then tell us how the priest is to offer that. And then in verse 14, it says this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, the Lord's holy things, anything dedicated to God, and this person sinning unintentionally against those things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation, in silver by shekels, in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary, 
for a guilt offering. He shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing and shall add to it a fifth part of it and give it to the priest. The priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and it will be forgiven him. Did you catch what's different in there? They're talking about sinning against sacred property, this inadvertent sin. He's told to bring a ram. And then he adds this additional factor, restitution, to cover the cost of whatever was lost or damaged or destroyed. They were to make it right. They were to give the value of what they had done plus a fifth of the value, an additional 20%. He gives another example in chapter, in verse 17 through 19, again, dealing with that. And then chapter six, another example, not just stolen, but also not, they've stolen something, but also lied about it. So it's, a, it's, it's obvious they, they know what they're doing. So they pay back again, 120% along with a ram for the guilt offering. See, there's a, there's a lesson here for us in this guilt offering. And that is the importance that God puts on restitution. See, there's ramifications sometimes for our actions. We can be forgiven, but we still need to take steps to correct the things that we've done that have cost others something. Restitution. That's what Zacchaeus talked about when he came to Jesus in Luke 19. And he stopped and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And I, if, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. See, that's the natural reaction of someone who's come to know Jesus. As Christians, we want things squared. We want to make things right. That's what the guilt offering points us to. There's a well-known pastor from around the turn of the 20th century by the name of F.E. Marsh. And one night he's up uh, speaking to his church and he's talking about this topic of restitution. And after the service is over, a young man came up to him and said, Pastor Marsh, he goes, you put me in sort of a tough situation. See, uh, um, I've done wrong to a guy that I work for and, uh, and, and I'm ashamed to confess it. And put it right, you see, I'm a, a boat builder and the man I work for is an unbeliever and, I, and I've talked to him many times about his need for Christ and I've talked to him about how he should come and listen to you preach, but he just ridicules it. Now if I go tell him what I've done, if I acknowledge that to him, it will ruin my testimony forever. And, and he went on to say that sometime back, uh, the company he worked for, it was... They built boats, and he, went, and he, as a boat builder, decided to build his own boat at his home. And so he's, as he's leaving work every day, he would take some copper nails because they were needed for his boat, and he just takes some home with him to help with the building of his own boat. And these copper nails were expensive, but he thought, you know, my boss, he's got a lot of money, and he's not going to miss these nails and he doesn't really pay me like he should. And so he's trying to soothe his conscience. But he goes, now, now I'm listening to this message. He goes, I realize I can't, I, I'm, I'm face to face with this fact that I'm doing wrong. I can't go to my boss though and tell him what I've done and pay for those nails. If I do, he'll think I'm just a hypocrite. 
But those copper nails are digging into my conscience. And I know I'll never have peace until I make this right somehow. And so he struggled this for, with this for weeks. And then one night he came to the pastor. And he said, Pastor, he said, I went back and I made things right with my boss. And he's like, Pastor Marsh is like, well, what did, how did he respond? He said, well, he said this to me. He said, George, I always did think you were just a hypocrite. But now, I begin to feel there's something up about this Christianity after all. Any religion that can make a man come back and confess that he'd been stealing copper nails and offer to settle for them must be worth having. Dr. Marsh is like, wow, that's great. Can I share that story? And so he began telling that story different times when he preached. He preached it one night. The next day, a lady came to him and said, hey, Dr. Marsh, I, I have, I've got some copper nails on my conscience too. She said, you know, I'm not a boat builder, but I am a book lover. And I have taken a number of books from a friend of mine who gets far more than I could ever afford. And I decided last night, I got to get rid of these copper nails. So I took them back to her and I confessed my sin. I can't tell you how relieved I am. She forgave me and God's forgiven me. He told that story at a high school chapel one time. Next day, the principal came to him and said, you won't believe the number of fountain pens that have been returned. <laughs> maybe, maybe you've got some of your own copper nails. You know, God intends for his children to make things right. Maybe it's not material things that you've taken. Maybe it's someone's reputation as you talked about them to others. Maybe it's someone's joy because you were harsh or critical to them. Maybe it's someone's joy just because you've been negative about life and you, you just complain about things a lot. Maybe you've taken some things. Maybe those are your copper nails. It's time to make it right. Reformation and restitution don't save us. Only Jesus can save us, right? But when we are truly repentant and we come to him in sincere confession, we will want the best of our ability to put things right with others. That's what the guilt offering points us to. So with these four offerings... We know this. I believe we get a, 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 a piece of understanding the heart of God. What he wants for us and what he wants from us. God wants us right with him. He wants us right with him. And he wants us to enjoy him and to enjoy each other. He wants us right with him so that our worship is right. And he wants us to make things right whenever possible with others. The bloodline and the sacrificial system shows us God's heart. And isn't, isn't, it, isn't it a great heart? 
And think about the design of those things. You know, those, again, those details that tend to sort of weigh us down as we read through them, they really do have a purpose. All that God wants for us. Are we shaped by him or are we resistant to him? The details of the sacrificial system showing us God's heart and calling us to obedience. And I don't know what area of your life you may be dealing with, you may be thinking of right now and what God may be dealing with you about right now, but whatever it is, whatever God is pointing out to you at this moment, please be obedient to him. It's what he wants. That's all that matters, isn't it? What he wants. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for your goodness, your, your goodness to us in so many ways. We thank you for uh, your love, your grace. Without that, Father, we would have no chance. But you've offered it to us. You've given it to us. Many of us have accepted that free gift. And God, we're just so grateful. And so grateful, Father, for the, your heart for us. We want to be right with you. God, we want to be right with others. We want to do that because we want our worship to be right. And God, we, at times, we may need to make some things right with others. Help us, God, to be faithful and obedient in all that you've given us to do. Today, we love you because, God, you first loved us. We can't thank you enough. We pray this, Father, in the name of our Savior. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. Look forward to seeing you next Sunday.